Welcome to the debate. I'm Andrew Tallman, and today we've got something kind of interesting for you. It's a little bit different project, something that we here at the debate and Newsweek have been working on in partnership with the National Association for Urban Debate Leagues. We are bringing you some actual debaters from schools around the nation. And so today we've got some students from Denver. They're going to join us later on at a uh, kind of an event at Newsweek headquarters in the coming weeks where they're going to debate each other in the open in front of a live audience, and we're going to create a podcast around that. But joining us tonight, we've actually got four students from the Denver chapter of the National Association for Urban Debate Leagues. We've got Isabella, and uh, Isabella is uh, from the Martin Luther King Jr. Early College. Isabella, welcome. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Also joining us tonight, we have Mariani. Uh, She is from Denver West High School. Mariani, welcome to the debate. Thank you. Hi, (laughs) y'all. Good to see you. And then also we have two from uh, Mapleton Public Schools. We have Ruby and Allyton. Ladies, welcome. Thank you for having us. You bet. First, though, we're going to talk with Sarah Sanchez. She's the Director of Programs and Communications at the Urban Debate League. Sarah, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having us all tonight. Uh, It's going to be a really great conversation, I hope. Oh, it's going to be a neat party. So first things first, for people who might not be familiar with debate or the Urban Debate League, can you just give people a little idea of what the kids are doing and what the Urban Debate League is all about? Absolutely. So uh, full disclosure, I was a debater in high school and I tell anyone who will listen, it was the most important thing that I did in high school or college signing up for that one little class. And while I didn't debate at an urban debate league, I debated in a coal mining town in Utah that had about 10,000 people at it. I can tell you that this activity teaches so many critical skills that are just tremendously important in education. And so we at the National Association for Urban Debate Leagues make sure that there are debate programs in public high schools in 22 different leagues across the country. Um, And some of our students from Denver are joining us tonight. So again, for people who don't know, because they've probably seen maybe presidential debates, they might have seen a debate for their, you know, local city council or county commission or something like that. uh, In policy debate, which is uh, what these students are doing, they're actually debating very specific ideas or what we call propositions, which is arguing for and against a specific idea, right? Right. So there's lots lots of different types of debate. If you go look it up online, you'll find all different types of speech events and you'll find two on two debate. You'll find one on one debate. You'll find three on three debate there. They all have a little bit different character. Uh, the type of debate that our students here are used to is one where they debate a single topic for the entire year and they get pretty in the weeds on the issues and what types of solutions we should look for to solve those problems. They're looking for plans of action that will solve a certain set of problems that they've identified. And it's a really um, interesting way for students to engage with big issues that are important to them and see what types of solutions could impact those issues and change them for the better. And I will tell you, I will uh, confess it in the open. I was a debater in high school and in college, and I did a little bit of coaching after that. Uh, I love the plan. I love the program. I'm absolutely with you that there's probably nothing that ever trained my brain better than, you know, doing debate and having to think on your feet and form arguments and martial evidence and persuade an audience. It's uh, it's it's really something very special. Let's uh, bring the uh, ladies on in here and talk to them a little bit. Uh, first of all, let's talk to you, um, Isabella. What got you into debate? What what made this appealing to you? One day you're walking along and you thought, oh, I want to go argue with people. 
Well, it, I think it started, honestly, in my sixth grade AVID class where we had a little debate. I I think it was something about technology and I fell in love with it in that moment. But uh, at least in uh, my school, you can't join the debate team until eighth grade. And we were online in my eighth grade year. So I started then and I just continued on once we were eventually back in person in ninth grade and continue falling in love with it so that I'm where I am today. Mariani, what got you into debate in the first place? Well, um, just like Isabella, in my middle school, we had just like a regular debate class, but it wasn't just like, it wasn't policy debate. So once I got into high school, I was like, I want to take like an elective and I was just like speech and debate because I like talking. I'm a very talkative person. I like arguing and my mom's always like, you should be a lawyer the way that you argue with people. I'm just like, I could also just use debate in real life when I'm older. It's a skill that I'm going to use forever so i just thought why why not join now did you find it challenging because if you're used to arguing with people in private sometimes the the format and the rules of policy debate can be it can feel a little awkward at first like you know yeah i know how to uh you know doggy paddle but here i'm being taught how to do the backstroke competitively it's a different activity right it was so different. It's It was hard. I just didn't understand it. I was like, the cases, like, it was just so structured. It's like structured arguing. But, you know, I'm getting used to it. I'm a sophomore now. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to keep on getting better. Allie and Ruby, uh, you guys are friends and go to the same school. Uh, Allie, how'd you get into debate? I first started to join debate when my coach um, told me to join speech and debate. And I was like, what would that be? And he told me every information I needed to know that it was arguing information and getting facts. And I love advocating myself. I love talking. Um, I also love talking a lot. And the thing is like, I always say what I think in which like I got it. I got into love more what I was doing in debate. I, I started loving the community and all the stuff we and all the stuff with the on on debate. And for you, Ruby, what was your uh, kind of reason to get in? Did you guys get in together? Uh, no, actually, she went first. Then she like start convincing me, like Ruby, you should join. I feel like you would like it. And then I I joined like this year, and I feel like it's really fun. I start to love debating, which I actually make me feel like really confident while you're debating all that. All right. So I'm going to ask you guys to give, I think if, you, if this answer comes from you the way I expect it to, this will be the best persuasive argument for any student out there to join debate. I'll start with you, uh, Ruby. Did it make you better at arguing with your parents? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it actually did. Allison? <laughs> <laughs> Well, it got me better on arguing with, like, basically my brothers. Oh, and all right. Including with See? my coach. Yeah, same thing. Like, sometimes when we are in classroom, my teammates and me, we get to argue with him about certain things that doesn't come out. And we feel proud of it. We feel proud of how far we got in, um, how far we have come mm -hmm. throughout this learning journey and being speech and debate. And we have learned a lot. No, I, uh, arguing with your, uh, teachers, arguing with your, you know, sometimes your parents are really eager for you to get into debate until you're in a debate. 
And then they're not as eager that they put you into debate. <laughs> that could sometimes yeah. be the issue. Um, Mariani, one of the things I always remember about debate was like intense amounts of research, reading and cutting uh, you know, articles and memorizing things. It was very intellectually challenging. Uh, has that been your experience? I feel like I was on the other side of that just because before debate, I was doing student Congress and um, it's basically just like arguing like bills made up bills from other schools. And you have to sort of do your own research in order to make a speech. Um, if you're a firm, if you want that bill to pass or not. So I've been doing research like this whole time since I was doing student Congress before debate. So it was pretty easy, but I do know the struggle of like having to find sources. Like, mm -hmm. is this true or not? Like, are people going to believe me? Is this a good source? I definitely feel that struggle. And how about you, Isabella? Did you find that it, it was a lot of work? Did it challenge you intellectually? Did you find it pretty easy to do? I think it kind of varies by topic. Like last uh, last year's topic, which was heavily focused on NATO, was I think for a lot of people very intellectually challenging in the sense of we're so disconnected from NATO, especially as an urban debate league. But I think as we move into next year's topic, I don't think for most students, while there still is going to be that challenge of you have to find your own research and you have to learn how to cut cards and you have to learn how to tag things. I think we're also going to see a lot of students not struggling as much since next year's topic is on income inequality. And we're going to see a lot more personal arguments. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That was actually the last thing I wanted to ask you before we give you a chance to kind of show us what you do. Isabella, did you ever find a, a situation where you realize you were losing or you got asked a question. You're like, oh, dang, that's a really good question. I cannot answer that question straight on. It's going to be bad for me. Have you grown at all in encountering those kind of challenges? It's going to sound really bad to say this, but no, mostly because of the fact that at least in the duo that I'm in for policy debate, we typically end up doing open CX. And so, and we're, we're a very confident team. We're very proud. We averaged first this season and we got fourth at our city championship. Um, so we're very confident that we've always, almost always won. Um, and I, but I think the one instance where I was like, oh my God, I can't answer this is because I forgot what Diana was in a closed CX round. <laughs> <laughs> and it was very awkward. I was like, well, yeah, it's this. Cause I couldn't find what in the card said what Diana was. But I think that's maybe the only instance. And that was at city championships just a few weeks ago. It's sometimes the stuff that catches you off guard that uh, you learn from a little bit. What do you do when you completely forget what you're doing? Mariani, have you had any of those kind of experiences where you're like, oh, man, <laughs> this was not what I was you hoping know for? What I do? To be completely honest, I just make them laugh because, listen, if I make them laugh, they just forget that I don't know what I'm talking about. Like, you, and I just kind of try to sound confident, but it's all the time that this happens every single time. And I just I'm the type of person that kind of laughs when something awkward happens. So if you make them laugh, they'll just forget that I don't know what I'm talking about. And it works out. All right, so I have Isabella uh, is going to be chief of staff when she grows up, and uh, Mariani is going to be the elected official when she grows up, and because we figured out who can distract the audience a little bit with her uh, with her laughter. All right, so for those of you who are not familiar, policy debate is a very structured argument. Basically, what happens is one side is going to go first, and they give what's called an affirmative speech, where they just lay out the reasons that you need to have a plan put in place, and then why that's a good plan. And then there's going to be somebody from the other team that asks questions across examination, like you see in a court you know, trial sometimes. Then the other side gets up and they give what's called a negative constructive speech, where they, they lay out all the reasons why the first person who, who talked was completely wrong on everything they said. And they bring up things that that person didn't bring up to make the case against. 
There's another cross-examination, and then each of the main speakers gets a chance to kind of sum up or give what's called a rebuttal speech in the end. And each of these speeches are timed. Uh, Normally, they get quite a bit more time. We've made this a very shortened version for the debate. So tonight, we're going to be hearing the students argue over social media, whether social media as it's currently constructed is right, where it's free, but you have advertising, or whether maybe you should pay for access to social media, and whether that would be a better way to solve some of the issues that we have going on. But let's Let's go ahead and dive on in. Isabella is going to go first. She's got three minutes to give the first affirmative constructive. Isabella, the floor is yours. So today I'll be discussing the harms microtargeting and politics and advertising can have and why the solution is more social media regulation. I will argue that social media companies should adopt a subscription model. First, I will explain what political microtargeting is. Second, I'll elaborate on how political microtargeting affects democracy. Specifically, I'll look at why social media companies sell data to advertisers. Finally, I'll describe the benefits of a subscription model and discuss the impact the proposed plan would have on businesses. First, what is political microtargeting? Political microtargeting, which some scholars cite shorthand as PMT, uses your data, which is information on who slash what you interact with on social media, to direct political advertisements that will be most effective at you. This can create social media bubbles because, for example, if you interact with conservative people more often on social media, then you will get more conservative content and people on your feed, limiting your exposure to opinions on the other side. I contend that political microtargeting leads to a lack of trust and is harmful to democracy. Lucas Otto, a senior researcher at Lebanese Institute for the Social Sciences, and his colleagues found one negative consequence of PMT might be a fragmentation of societal and democratic public debates. That is, when voters are only confronted with selective role views and contents due to PMT, they may not be aware about the variety of considerations that exist about an issue or during an election campaign. This may lead to so-called echo chambers. Which leads me to my second point, the incentive media companies have for gathering and selling data. Media companies get money from advertisers to know exactly what you want and what you will interact with. By paying a monthly fee, we would eliminate the need for media companies to sell our data for PMT. A recent Washington Post article cites Meredith Whitaker, founder of the messaging app Signal, to illustrate this point. The only way to escape technology that makes money off your data is paying for products that don't, Whitaker says. A subscription model would work. It was estimated that in 2021, social media companies were making $153 billion off of advertising alone. Now imagine a world where we introduced a $5 a month subscription for social media apps and the 4.48 billion people who use them. This would result in approximately $268.8 billion in revenue, which is over $100 billion more than they made last year selling advertisements. Companies would make more than they are currently making off selling data, but they would need to provide a product we are willing to pay for. Subscription services could eliminate social media companies selling not just your data to political advertisers, but selling your data at all. Some may ask what would happen if media companies lost customers who were unable or unwilling to pay these fees. I estimate media companies would need to lose 2 billion users and never regain them to lose money with a $5 a month fee. In fact, social media companies could charge as little as $2.85 a month, less than $35 a year, and they would make about the same as they did last year off of advertisements. I propose a social media subscription because it's a win-win, appealing to customers while still providing revenue for companies. Political micro-targeting is dangerous, but currently media companies 
make all of us take on that risk to sell our day for profit. A social media subscription would work. We already know smaller messaging app companies like Signal that are moving towards the subscriber model. Signal offers its users encrypted messaging and they are willing to pay for it. It is proof a social media company subscription would work as long as users find value in the product. Social media subscriptions could create apps that are more appealing to everyone while avoiding the risk of echo chambers and misinformation. Outstanding. Now, I imagine some of the listeners are a bit shell-shocked because <laughs> they're not used to listening to that pace of argumentation, but that's that's fantastic. Outstanding. All right, so we have the first chance for cross-examination. This is going to come from Ruby, and she's got a minute to ask Isabella questions. Why don't you guys just leave your mics on and open, and then you can ask your questions. Ruby, go ahead. Uh, my first question would be, uh, can these social media apps still sell our information, even on top of the subscription? No, uh, that's part of the terms and conditions, which is a legally binding contract. By mandating a social media subscription, that would also involve forcing the trade-off of money to stop having your data sold. So no, social media companies would not be allowed to sell our information. Okay, thank you. Um, what about hackers? How will you prevent people getting around that subscription? There's no way to get around hackers in any situation, but I don't think there are enough hackers that would try to get around the subscription that would it would be a problem, especially in comparison to the average number of people on the platform. Overall, I don't think hackers would be a problem. Thank you. And that will be all for me. Very good. All right. So now we got Mariani is going to do the uh, first negative constructive. Uh, now, typically also, they will have time in a debate to prep so they can sit and pause and collect their thoughts and make their notes, uh, which we're not really giving them that tonight. So, uh, Mariani, are you ready to proceed with your, uh, your first negative constructive for three minutes? Very ready. All right. Go ahead. We all consume media constantly. From a picture to an album to a tweet set out from the literal U.S. president, media is everywhere. The difference between a picture and a tweet is how data from the tweet can be collected. While I agree with Isabella that political micro-targeting is dangerous, I will propose a plan on how we should be educated on micro-targeting. As Isabella noted, the point of political micro-targeting is for political campaigns to use voter information and social media data to push their opinions and agendas onto that audience without them even realizing. January 6th, the U.S. Capitol was attacked by right-wing extremists. Professor Barbara Bickart brings light to how social media had a huge impact on the events of that day. Before the current social media platforms were established, we might have spread ideas in email chains or in phone calls, but those communications could only go to people we knew, those in our current networks. Bickart explains why the people who were on Facebook after the presidential election would not have organized this attack without having a platform or the algorithm bringing them all close. The attack of January 6th is a perfect example of the dangers of micro-targeting. We need to teach our future generations to critically read and think about all the forms of media they consume so that they're informed to understand and interpret the world. We as a society need to understand what exactly we're participating in while we subconsciously scroll through pages on Twitter. By doing so, we need to develop critical media literacy. These strategies permit students to critique the media they encounter. Students should be considering the way the viewers position, identify values and emotion the artwork appeals to, think about what information the creator has omitted, and so much more. School curriculum should include media literacy classes for high schoolers. Further research shows that even using a meme to critically analyze can educate students on how to find a deeper meaning behind the media they're taking in. These courses can showcase the simple ways that the analysis from your observations of a piece of media can have so much more meaning than just a story on Instagram. 
Schools in Finland use this exact strategy to make sure that their students are not exposed to fake news and how to form their own opinions. School districts shall take action and make sure the teacher instructing the classes unbiased and solely there for the purpose of educating the classroom. My plan will have the future of our world educated on micro-targeting so that they themselves can find ways to be aware and decide what steps they want to take after. When looking at educating versus regulating, there is one side that has more pros than the other. In the context of limiting micro-targeting, my opponent suggests that social media apps should charge a $5 to $10 monthly subscription in order to keep younger audiences from using apps. In the world we live in now, with TikTok and Instagram having booming audiences, teenagers are ruling the internet. They're showing to be spreading awareness to real-world problems and starting up movements for the greater good. An amazing example of young people using their platforms on social media are the Glow Girls. These two tween sisters use their earnings from their online singing videos to donate each month to a food bank in Florida. In the year of 2021, they helped give out 12,000 meals to people in need. Imagine if these two teen girls were stopped from being on a social media because of a $5 subscription. Along with that, Black and Latino youth are more likely to be negatively impacted by a subscription fee. My plan is to not silence their voices, but make their voices stronger. Our purpose here is to educate, not regulate. Outstanding. And now we've got uh, Allerton is going to do a one-minute cross-examination of Mariani. Why don't you guys just leave your mics on and uh, proceed when you're ready, Allerton. Thank you. How will education help when political micro-targeting is meant to be a sneaky and can battlefield even the smartest of the people? Uh, people will be educated on exactly how micro-targeting works, like how to analyze it and how to know what you're looking at um, because of these media literacy classes. They'll be aware of, you know, if they're being micro-targeted or not when they're like scrolling through social media because they know how to handle their information. They know what they're looking at. They're in, like, they know what they're interacting with. Like some of the smartest people weren't prepared on how to do so, which exactly why we're here to help. Okay. Moving on to my next question is what about the older generations? So assuming the older generation is already on social media themselves, the way our generation now can just share awareness from the click of one button, there's going to be posts about market targeting that everyone on social media can see and educate themselves with. As we teach our, our own generation and future generations, they'll go back home and talk to their parents. And then their parents are going to bring that up in another conversation they're having with other adults. And the word will spread quick. You might even see it on the news. And then once it's on the news, more people will see it. Word spreads quick. And for my last question will be, what about the younger generations? Um, the same goes for the younger generations. Um, I feel like a lot now we see a lot of the younger generation already on social media. So obviously they'll have access to like, you know, if people are making posts about political micro-targeting. But not only that, like we might even have a plan to like expand these media literacy classes to younger students if the plan goes well with our high schoolers. That's going to be all for my questions. Very good. All right. So now we have a typically in a debate, there's going to be a little bit of time when the arguers will think about what they want to say for their final speeches. And uh, but I, I think you guys are kind of prepared already, so we don't necessarily need to take that. And I think, uh, Isabella, are you the, you're going to go next? Is that right for the rebuttal? All right. So it'll be the same order then Isabella and then Mariani. And these are a little bit shorter, about a minute and a half each. So Isabella, defend your plan against that rascally counter plan that your opponent just ran on you. 
In this speech, I will restate my plan, quickly summarize the arguments I have made, and apply them against my opponent's points. As stated earlier in the debate, I'm proposing that a social media subscription is mandated. The subscription will also mandate a trade-off of money in exchange for your data not being sold. I think the best summary and comparison I can give you for my arguments is that I'm thinking about businesses and people simultaneously. Education can't solve everything. We need to force companies to stop selling data. The best way to do that is by providing financial incentive. My plan of a social media subscription would force media companies into a trade-off with the consumer. The consumer provides money for a subscription. The exact cost may vary from app to app, but I am suggesting a maximum of $5. And the media company will stop selling your data to political advertisers. This helps everyone, no matter age, and gets around the issue of older and younger people who haven't been in the most recent media literacy class that my opponent has suggested. Society has shown that they are willing to pay for things they really want. If you think back to my signal example from my first speech, this can be used as proof that people will pay for things such as encryption and their data not being sold. A social media subscription would force social media companies to work to keep people on their platforms with new innovative ideas such as new products and bundles. This would make social media more appealing for the consumer while still keeping money-hungry companies at bay. After summarizing and comparing my opponent's arguments, as in a typical policy debate, I would urge you to vote in favor of social media regulation instead of social media education. Thank you. And now for the final speech of the round. Uh, Mariani, you have a minute and a half for your last rebuttal. All right. We should adopt the plan to incorporate media literacy classes for high schoolers and for future generations to know what micro-targeting is and how to deal with it. Education is preferable to regulation, as we're demonstrating literally right now. We're listening to three-minute speeches and questions and plans all about micro-targeting. I don't know about you, but I didn't even know what micro-targeting was until I started preparing for this debate. Through researching this case, I know that while I'm on social media, there will always be at least one little sneaky post of some company trying to catch my attention. And now I just simply won't be as willing to click on it. I won't be as clueless as I am to give in to what they want. If we limited access to platforms because of the subscription service my opponent is suggesting, we could be silencing millions of POC youth all over the world. According to a study held by Tufts University, the percentage of Black and Latino youth that have used their platform to share some type of social justice posts towers over, over other racists' usage of their platforms. Taking away from these young voices the future of our world's opportunity to call out the issues we live with today is silencing a lot of voices, all because of a $5 subscription. How can we justify taking away that podium from my community to spread issues we have as minorities? Not only just people of color, but the LGBTQ plus community, the disabled community, minorities in general. Where will we go when such an easy way to speak on issues is stripped away from being so accessible as it is now? My plan will never ever take away the voice of the people for money, but it will strengthen the voice of the people with education, enrichment, and overall knowledge. When, when people learn about things, ideas flow, words get spread, people will see and know what micro-targeting is, and they might just come up with even more solutions. Just as I mentioned in my speech before, I'm here for education of the people, not regulation and silencing of the people. Choose enrichment for our world from here on out. Outstanding. Nicely done. I know you don't normally get much of an audience for these things, and the judge doesn't really talk back. They just scribble furiously at their pad, and you don't know what's going on. Uh, but nicely done, ladies. That's fantastic. So um, just I have a question for each of you uh, before we leave you for the night. Uh, let's start with you, uh, Mariani, since you were just talking. Um, 
this project with Newsweek, uh, what have you learned from that? In addition to doing, you know, the debate and all that, what have you learned in the interaction with the Newsweek project with the debate? I've learned that a lot of the behind the scenes, because like, for example, of just there was like this video that I watched of just like tips for this podcast. And I was like, a lot more thought goes into making content and podcasts for people. Like I could just be listening to something and just like, I didn't, I don't really think too much of it, but now that I'm like behind the scenes of like making and recording one, I'm just like, dang, like it's a lot of work. (laughs) And I think, people who make podcasts and content should be more appreciated because it is a lot of hard work. Yeah. We're the best, right? We're definitely the best. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Thanks, Mariana. That was outstanding. Uh, Isabella, you're looking forward to this trip to New York where you're going to get to do this in front of a bunch of people on a big stage or uh, what are you thinking about that? I am extremely excited. Um, I have been in front of a handful of people before for public debates, like back in October, uh, city champions, kind of, as I mentioned earlier and things of that nature. But I think this is going to be an entirely new level. I was so excited when I heard Newsweek because I had a card from them <laughs> for my debate. I was like, oh my God, Newsweek. Oh my God. So I'm very excited. <laughs> <laughs> I can hear. That's fantastic. And uh, finally, uh, Allerton and Ruby, um, your thoughts, just, you know, what do you think about this? And, um, you know, uh, especially the, especially the big event in New York. I think it's really like exciting and like the way they're given like an opportunity to us, like to express. And actually I think, like I was say before, I think it's really exciting. Very good. Allerton. What I think about this is like, it's such a great opportunity that, you guys are doing this project. You guys are giving a voice to the younger generations and talking about this um, important case that we have and giving us um, an opinion to let people know what what's going on in social media, what's going on with our data that is being used. And it is, it is really exciting that I'm going to be um, seeing again these amazing people that I've been in um, the public forum the past September, or I think it was the October that passed. But getting to experience this again, it just it just makes me happy because we are here to do what we love and demonstrating it in front of a lot of people is such a big deal. It really is. You guys have done fantastic. And just last quick question for you, Sarah. How proud are you right now? You can't see me on a podcast. I'm grinning ear to ear. Uh, Working with all of the students across our network is honestly one of the privileges of a lifetime. And as you heard from our ladies from Denver tonight, they are doing outstanding work and they are talking about important issues and how they impact them, impact their communities and the types of solutions they would like to see. So honestly, I, I could not be more proud of these four ladies. And I am looking forward to seeing what they do uh, on Newsweek's bigger stage in New York. No, it's it's really amazing. I love the project. I love you guys uh, working with us on it. It's fantastic. Uh, frankly, I'm I'm amazed to hear people uh, doing debate, policy debate in their second language, which is so, I mean, it's just really super encouraging to me about uh, what our students today are learning. Ladies, thank you so much. Sarah, Allerton, Ruby, Mariani, Isabella, great job. And uh, we'll see you in a couple of weeks in New York. Thanks for being here tonight on The Debate from Newsweek. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. Thank Thank you you so much.
why. Why? If you why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion.